Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood, your steadfast host. (laughs) Why I'm steadfast, I do not know. I guess because it's Friday and I have made it through another week and so have you. So well done, my friends. Well done. We have done it. Today's guest is Ada Calhoun. She's the author of the new-ish book, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. This is a great discussion. If you are a Gen Xer, and I believe she said that is women born between 1965 and 1980, although it's been stretched out to 84 in certain circumstances, this book is for you. And this podcast is also for you. And I think the big question that came out of this is how do we create more support? Because her book and hypothesis is our generation, Gen Xers, is different in terms of the expectations that were placed on us and the lack of support or the lower amounts of support in our lives and and that role. And so one of the questions that I saw emerging out of just talking with Ada was how do we create more support? And I think some of it is happening as we speak. I mean, for example, these podcasts, the ability to, to meet and, and talk to someone live, I mean, that's definitely something, but how can we do a better job of sharing our experiences, of being honest about who we are, about what we're struggling with? I mean, right now I'm sitting in a darkened bedroom <laughs> because this is where I do my podcast now. Someone is mowing the yard across the street and my son was just screaming about something. And, and this is my life. Like, this is, this is podcast life here. And so a lot of people who tell me, oh, my gosh, you've got it all together and everything is. No, I'm here, like, in stretch pants and a dress-up shirt trying to look nice on Zoom. You know, it is what is reality for us. And I think if we can start to have that conversation, what does reality look like for you every day? What does it feel like? And, and what, what are your struggles? And especially right now talking about privilege and white privilege and really listening to other voices from individuals that we don't have shared experiences and opening our hearts and our minds and our ears to what is going on in in other people's experiences. And that's how you create support and community and hopefully change and and revolution and, and opportunities to be better than our generation before and the generation that we're currently in like how can we grow and that is born out of community and it's born out of listening and responsibility that is beyond just do what you're supposed to do it's a responsibility of conviction and and changing things for the better for our future for our children's future for our next generation's future so all of that to say (laughs) today's episode with ada calhoun is absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed speaking with her and learning from her and her book, Why We Can't Sleep, is available wherever you buy your books. And I do encourage you to check out her audiobook. She has a great voice and um, the reading was really fantastic. So hope you all enjoy this episode with Ada Calhoun. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. 
So let's get started. All right, everybody. Everyone is still kind of rolling in, so I'll keep admitting people. Welcome to this live recording of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm very excited about our guest today. Ada Calhoun is here. Hello, my dear. Hello. Lovely to be with you on this rainy day. How are you? I, it's, it's a hard question to answer. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like to lean with the hard ones. <laughs> I'm already stumped. Um, I'm fine. You know, it's all, it's all fine, isn't it? Yeah, it's all fine. That's, that's going to be the word of 2020. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. Everything is fine. So thank you all for joining. This is super exciting. I started reading, well, I was listening to Ada's book on Audible. Um, gosh, it was, had to, I don't know four or five months ago. And um, just uh, just like this book is me. This is my life. How is she in my head? Oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm 40. Um, I'm technically on the cusp of Gen X and millennial, but mm-hmm. at 1979, but I am definitely Oh no, Gen we Xer. claim you. You're definitely at 79. <laughs> you're right in there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Because what is, what is Gen X? Like what is the official... So different people have different ranges, um, but the Pew Research Center says 1965 to 1980 as birth years, but I've seen up to 1984 um, as a very plausible Gen X contingent. (laughs) That's right. So her book, Why We Can't Sleep, like, let's just think about that title for a brief minute. Um, The Women's Midlife, New Midlife Crisis, I believe is a subtitle. And um, I thought, oh my gosh, what is the old midlife crisis? And, and that just opens up the whole can of worms, right? I mean, I don't even know where to start with this, Ada, because it is, first of all, the book, if you haven't read it and you were in Generation X, it is just an incredible, inc- incredibly researched book, first of all, but just one that I feel with all of my soul in a lot of ways. So let's lead with Gen X, like let's just lead you. You kind of diagnose the the years of people that are stuck in Gen X. But what is the difference between Gen Xers? The main difference that you see between the, the generation that came before, which I believe is baby boomers, right, and then millennials. So why are we different from those two generations? Yeah, so we're called the Jan Brady of generations sometimes because we are. Um, overlooked very often. We hear so much about the boomers and the millennials and uh, and not so much about Gen X, who were the latchkey kids of the 70s and 80s. We, we were the children of divorce. 40% of our parents divorced. Um, and, you know, we grew up in a time of really high crime and, uh, and sort of dangerous era and a, and a broke era for America while being told, especially as girls, reach for the stars. You can be anything, even president. It's going to be, you know, world is your oyster. Have it all. Do it all. And what I heard from a lot of the women I interviewed uh, is that they felt that that message had set them up to feel just really disappointed um, by their lives (laughs) in middle age. But, but no one's really connecting that though, right? That's that's something I kind of got from your book is is as you interviewed people, women were like, yeah, I'm disappointed. And it, it's almost like we hadn't made the connection between this expectation and you can have it all and what that actually looks like at 40, well, 45. Well, 
so many of the women that I talked to, they they told me that they felt like they just weren't working hard enough or they just hadn't found the right um, life coach or read the right self-help book or or done the right thing. And that was why they didn't have everything they thought they would have. So if they didn't have a family and they thought they would, it, they must not have tried hard enough. They must have been too picky. If they didn't have the career they wanted, they must not have leaned in enough. And it was the self-blame um, that I really took issue with in the book, this idea that we didn't come up in a in in no context, you know. Like there were forces at work beyond our control. We've had a lot of rough luck in terms of the economy, um, and, and in terms of a lot of other things that I go into in the book. Okay, so so I got a chat that someone says they're having a hard time hearing you, Ada. Can you check your microphone? I can hear oh, yeah. you because I have you booming on a professional mic, but it may be that yeah. the Zoom microphone is not. Okay, if maybe... I turn this up, is this louder? <laughs> is that better? Is that deafening get... for you? <laughs> it's deafening for Okay, everyone says yes. I record on two separate tracks, so I can work out any blips later, but I want to make sure everyone can hear you now. Okay, good, good. And he said, yes, that works. Perfect. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. All right. We're in business. Um, okay. okay. I don't know where we were, though. I was like, oh, no technical difficulties, and then I fall off. So Gen where X, were we? Gen X, hard, Gen X, hard road Gen to hoe. Hard road to hoe. And then women blaming themselves. So um, so a lot right. of the of you can be anything, you can do anything became somehow in their brain. I must do everything. I must do it all perfectly. Um, and there's no room for error. No pressure. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is fine. Once again, everything is fine. And you bring up that ad, that perfume ad that I know Brene Brown brings up in her vulnerability talk or one of them about the whole like work hard. I'm everything. Make you feel like a man, all this stuff. Like we're supposed to, we grew up thinking, oh, we can be anything, but where did we get the message that we have to be everything? Like, because like, where does that come from? Yeah. So the commercial that you're referencing, I I think a lot of women who grew up in that era can sing it um, even now. Uh, And it was, you can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan and and never let you forget you're a man. Right. So it was like these kind of three things. Yeah. And it's like, you look at it now and it's completely insane. But I just think there was this kind of brainwashing campaign and that was the most obvious example. But you look at the movies of the time, you look at a lot of the messages we were getting. And you see this, this mantra of you can have a career, a really powerful career, you can have a family, and you can be sexy. And you can do all those three things effortlessly and be a fantastic parent, of course, um, to your children. And it, it will it'll be great. It's just going to be great um, and, and easy. And, and then nobody gave this generation any support. So a lot of women entered college without anybody paying for college, for example. And I heard one story after another of of people working straight through school, having to really compromise what they wanted to do in terms of like, they wanted to go for a master's, they couldn't afford it. Um, And then graduating into recession, and then at every point hitting the dot-com bust and um, September 11th and the housing crisis. And the housing crisis, of course, hit Gen X harder than any other generation um, because it was right when we were in that zone of like, oh, yes, finally, here is our piece of the American dream. Um, and then it came crashing down. So I think there's right. this been this this bad luck for our generation. <laughs> yeah. This bad looming. Yeah, no, that, that, that really rings very true. And I think something that was interesting, I was doing a book event and this 
older lady came up to me after I'd done my talk and she said, you know what's wrong with your generation? <laughs> and I thought, Do everything tell. <laughs> I just said, like, did it hit a nerve with you? And she said, you think you have it so hard. And I, I was so stunned for a minute, um, just because she was probably in her 70s, okay? And, and, and all I wanted, I was so stunned, I didn't know what to say. And then, of course, she walked off and I thought of all the things I wanted to say, like, <laughs> you don't know what it, but yes. it was just so interesting because what is the divide there? Because I get, I feel that a lot from other, other generations, especially the baby boomers, like you have everything. What are you complaining about? I mean, even my own mother at dinner one night, I was, um, I had two kids like under three. I was a litigating attorney trying to hold it all together. We were paying a nanny, like three quarters of my salary out the door to raise my children and teach them to tie their shoes. And I was sitting at a Mexican restaurant. I remember it like yesterday. And my mom goes, I really don't see what your problem is. You have a nanny. <laughs> And so it's not just this woman at the book signing. My own mother was like, what is your problem? You have a nanny. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is that? What is that about? <laughs> well, I think it, it feels difficult. I don't know why for a lot of people to admit that other generations have different ish, different problems. Like, and I think it's, I go really, um, I try really hard in the book to say it's not a competition. Like millennials right. have a lot of problems and boomers had a lot of problems. I look at, our mother's generation and what they had to deal with in terms of sexism in the workplace, it's like comically, horribly um, absurd, like what they dealt with. And then millennials, it is true. Like they, they're having, I mean, think about people graduating now. I mean, my son's graduating right. middle school, theoretically next month on the internet. Like um, it's horrible. So it's not a competition about who had it harder. It's just about what is the, what is the specific challenge for us compared to them? And I think in this case, um, you know, if our mothers and grandmothers worked, they worked nine to five. If they had families, they had them when they were 22 and not when they were 32 or 42. And so what we're dealing with when we're in our 40s is just different than what they dealt with in their 40s. They had an empty nest. Um, you know, they still had men perimenopause. That's eternal, unfortunately. <laughs> but it was just a different... We're never getting out of that one. Yay, period. <laughs> it was a different um, list of cha challenges then than it is now. And the thing that I describe in the book is this sense of being overwhelmed. I mean, women of this generation, like if you talk about working a full-time job as a lawyer and having little kids, this is new. It's just a different... It's a different situation. It's not necessarily worse. It's worse in some ways, especially in yeah. terms of whether or not you get any rest at all. Um, but it's just different. It's new. And I think we should talk about the unique challenges that we're, we're facing. Yeah, you raise such a good point. I mean, women like to compete with each other and decide who has it worse and who has it better and who's doing it better. And I mean, that's, that's a big part of our generation. And I, no I noticed you brought it up in the book is that we're not just competing for like maybe prior generations were competing for, Hey, I have a nicer house and it's clean, but now it feels like we're competing with everything. And, and I think you raised that in your book that it's like everything, job, house, car, number of kids, not kids, pets, the husband, not, you know, all of it is just on display. And maybe that's part of the Facebook generation. And that's something we will share with millennials. I think that just that everything's out there. But what did your research show about the comparison culture and how seeing what other people are doing and how that ties into our expectations and, and how it's all linked? 
Yeah. So I, I had a lot of um, the, the therapists I interviewed and I, I love getting to call therapists and basically get free therapy um, by interviewing them for my book. <laughs> That's what this book really was, right? Like, let's be real. How do I fix I, this midlife crisis? <laughs> I mean, it's not even a joke. Like it really, I really went into it having a super rough time and I came out right. of it feeling so much better. Um, so there is that. But a lot of the therapists I talked to said that part of it is social media. It's just this constant stream of images of other people succeeding that even if we're conscious of it, even if we think, I know that's not real. I know they're using filters. I know that marriage isn't as sunny and glorious as it looks, you know, with them sitting on the beach holding hands. Um, there's something about it that gets into us somehow that where we start to think that that's real and that what we have is lesser. And, and I think there is this tendency, maybe because of how we grew up or because we're women or whatever it is to sort of see what we don't have and not what we do. And I think that that, that that comparison culture that social media encourages really plays into it. And it can be very toxic. And and also, I think it's very lonely. I, I, you know, a lot of the women that I interviewed, and I know this from personal experience, wind up with this feeling of sadness, like after being subjected to this battery of images of other people. Uh, there's something about it that's, that's like shameful. And so in the book, yeah. I try to talk about what's really behind all those all those sunny, sunny smiles and beach pictures is like everybody's dealing with trying to be a human being in the world. Right. One of the words that I hate most in our language, and you may like it, I, I don't think you do just based off of your research <laughs> in the book, but is the idea of balance. And I have found that oh. balance is just another way of shaming people into right. not battle, not handling their load appropriately or not being able to do it all. Like if you don't have balance, you just, you're not doing all the things you should be doing because this was your opportunity to have it all and you're not doing a good job with what you have and you have it all. And and it just right. takes me back to me, like, you have a nanny. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die. You know, it's just that dialogue, like dialogue in my head. So where do you fall on that word balance? I think it's really fun. I mean, I think what, what you're describing um, rings very true to me. And, and I think it is this idea that, um, that it's not looking at the at the bigger problem. I think that's the the issue I have with all of this um, the self help and like mindfulness and all the stuff that's great, sure. But it's but the idea that it's going to fix everything if you get the right diet or the right exercise routine or the right balance metric. Um, no, the issue is we're trying to do a ton of stuff with very little support, and that is the problem. And that is that means it's going to be hard, no matter what. And that we should maybe try to try to find some more support and or try to do less or at least not be surprised if we're really exhausted. <laughs> so what does support look like? What what did your research show as far as how people that got how women in this midlife crisis how they got better. <laughs> How, what is the way out? Because I remember like halfway through your book, I was like, oh my God, okay, I feel all of this with everything. I really hope she comes up with some solutions <laughs> soon because it was, you felt it. I mean, you felt everything in the book at being a midlife woman. And so what does that support look like? And that was one of the things you, you obviously pointed out in the book is like with support. Um, yes. But what, what does that look like for, for most women? Yeah. So it looks like this sort of, I mean, this is one of, I think what you're doing is really, it's really important. Um, I think getting women to talk honestly about their lives and talk to one another and, and really look at it and look what their, look at what their expectations are and whether or not they're realistic. I think that's number one. 
I think finding a good gynecologist is really important. I think that this stage of life is very hard on women's bodies in ways that we that a lot of doctors don't even fully understand yet because the research has been so scanty. Um, I think it's it's really important to pay attention to that part of it. Um, you know, get a financial planner, make make your partner do the dishes and cook dinner half of the, you know, like whatever it is, like anything that's going to make your life a little easier and more um, plausible given all the things you're trying to do. And also just recognizing that this is a phase of life that is, that is rough on a lot of people. Um, and it, it doesn't end. Did you say it doesn't end? It does. Oh, it never ends. It does end. It doesn't. It doesn't. And one of the challenges that you br- you mention in the book is how we're also this often the sandwich generation because we had kids later, and then we have aging parents, and all of a sudden we're taking care of two sets of children, older ones and the younger ones, and and that I mean obviously it gets better when things grow older, and anytime I have a client who's got littles, you know, like four and six. Oh, my kids are four and six and I need to exercise more. I'm like, no, you just need to survive this phase. It gets better. Um, because yeah. it's just, it's so hard. And I do think that you hit the nail on the head that talking about it. And if you've had kids that are four and six and you see someone that in your network that has four and six year olds, go talk to them, <laughs> go yeah. tell them, you know, and, and I think, I think you're right on that. So, um, if anyone has any questions for Ada while, while she's online, please feel free to raise your little internet hand or type it in the chat. And this is a great opportunity. Um, let's talk about dreams. You, you posed oh, a question. When, well, or you posed a question that was frequently brought up in your interviews, which was, when do I give up on my dream? Like, I had this dream when I was 20. And then I had a couple of kids, got married or didn't have kids, didn't like whatever. But now I'm 45. And when do I cry uncle and say, I give up? <laughs> like, where do you fall in the dream spectrum? And because and, that is such a big, big topic in my life right now. Just um, I, I, I believe in never stopping. And you may have to revisit them and edit them. But um because I'm not going to be a swimsuit model at this point. So just edit, but maybe model. I mean, maybe for, you know, the senior magazine, (laughs) it's fine. Um, But it it doesn't mean I have to give up on the dream or do we like, talk about dreams a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think it is true that as we get older um, and make choices that other choices fall away. Right. So if we, um, if we have kids, it, means we don't ever again get to not be a mother, right? Like that's done. Um, you know, we can't be single forever if we get married. Like you, once you start making choices, you're, you're, the field narrows for what's possible. So I think maybe it's about, like you said, editing, editing dreams, <laughs> revising dreams. Um, <clears throat> you know, there was this idea of the American dream for so long about how every generation was going to do better than the generation before it. And that was true for a long time, but it's, it's not true now. Generation X was the first generation that earned less um, than its parents and millennials. It's going to be the same situation, probably Gen Z also. Um, and so we need new dreams that are not that dream, this dream of like mm. endless prosperity. There's one statistic in the book that's one in, only one in four women from about Generation X will out-earn her father. So it's, it's, wow. it's just not it's it's not possible, and I think we should we should face up to that and, and figure out what new dreams we can dream 
that are that are realistic, but also um, will bring us joy. What was the biggest regret that you came across when you were speaking with us, <laughs> these yeah. other all the midlife women? What was the sort of the theme of regret? What was the biggest regret? Oh, gosh, there were a lot. I would say, um, you know, I, I talked to a lot of women who had either, I mean, it's, it's funny because I touched a lot of women who had families who regretted not doing more, um, with their careers, who got into their forties or fifties and said, you know, like I raised these three kids, but I've only worked part time. I always thought I was going to have the working girl office, you know, in corporate America and it didn't happen. Um, and, and they would say something like, what did I do wrong? And then meanwhile, I'd interview another woman, maybe the same day from a different part of the country who had the fancy office and had never found a partner or had children. And she would say, like, what did I do wrong? I didn't have a family. Um, and I always thought I would. And now I'm running out of time or out, I feel like I'm out of time. And, you know, I, I, think, I think the question is, is that regret on them? Or, or was this idea that you were going to be able to do everything all at once with this very narrow window of time? Was it, was it realistic? to put that on girls' shoulders. Yeah. And where does the grass is greener fall in your research? Because, I mean, I find that people that have children are looking at our single friends like, wow, (laughs) your life looks a little bit more fun than mine at the moment. And then, you know, you have people that wanted kids, couldn't have them, didn't want them, and and all of that. I mean, I feel like children is such an interesting topic amongst women. Like, everyone feels very polarized, like the mothers, the non-mothers, the ones who never wanted or couldn't, you know. Um, But how much of it is grass is greener, and and that's just part of our uh, nature, I feel like someone should do a like a Generation X Freaky Friday movie where this like, you know, mother of three young children gets swapped, you know, with the the childless woman who has the high powered job. And um, because I do see that so much, I've felt it myself and I've seen it in a lot of friends, this idea that like, oh, if only, you know, if only I could like go date again or if only I could, yeah. you know, could cuddle up with a family and watch a my family and watch a movie, you know, like from my single friends. Um it's all, you know, it's all wonderful and all terrible, right? I think that that's something that's hard for us to hold, this idea that that nothing is nothing is perfect. Right. It's like during the quarantine, everyone that's alone is like really alone and they're miserable because they haven't had human contact. And then all of us that are quarantined with people are like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> like, I would give anything to be alone. I mean, that's the most recent one I can see. Yeah, I'm, Just, I'm hiding in my son's like bedroom. That's why I have the uh, the country backdrop on. Because you know, how old's your son? He's 13. Oh, let's see what's in his room. Okay. <laughs> let's do it different. Okay. Let's do it different. In, uh, okay, let's see what's on the shelf there. <laughs> okay, that's a, a Star Wars mask. There's the pinata. <laughs> There's like a chess award. There's a bunch of, <laughs> a lot of books about castles. Yeah. That's awesome. 13. Yeah. Oh my 13. Goodness. All right. Yeah. Suzanne says, hi, Suzanne. As an older woman, 58, I don't think there's just one sandwich generation. I think there's a time in your oh. life you are sandwiched. It will pass. Your parents will die. Your children will grow up. It's just a period that you are sandwiched by taking care. Yeah. We're totally just true, sandwiches. However. We are sandwiches. I will say that is totally true. And that, um, and that our mothers, I mean, I remember my mother going through this, you know, when I was a surly teenager where her, her parents were dying and she was flying to Texas all the time. And she was definitely in it. What is a little different this, this time around is that, um, our generation waited 
to have kids. So you have a lot more women who are in their 40s now with young children um, at the same time that their parents are need a lot of care. And that, it's just a, it's a slight difference. Um, and also, we were born during a baby bust, which means there are a lot, few, there are many fewer people there to help. So, you know, AARP publishes these numbers about how many available caregivers there are for anybody who needs care. So, if a few years ago it was seven people, you know, siblings and cousins and friends who could look after someone who was aging and needed help, now it's, I think, four. Into one, and I think it's going to be three to one soon. So, if there's only three people, that means it's much more likely that you, while you're raising your little kids, are going to have to go bring food to your mom. It's it's just it's just a tightening. It's like a panini version of the sandwich, um, but it is not to take away from from the experiences that that our mothers and grandmothers had, because of course they did the same thing. Panini. Yeah. Speaking of paninis, the best sandwich maker is that just old school thing that makes sandwiches into triangles, <laughs> which I oh. feel like is our generation. Cause I, the sandwich maker, it's not the panini press. It literally just, and then you, you bite into it and it's like a hot pocket and burns, burns your mouth. But I just I thought about that when you said panini. Are oh, they gosh. on the internet? I should look for of that. Of course. But I think it's, I think we have a Cuisinart brand. I don't know. It's okay. not that it matters, but it's, it's like the little, it makes little square hot sandwiches, but. Very much panini, sort of, but tighter. That <laughs> the sandwiches good. are tighter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things that struck me as funny, I think I laughed out loud in the when I was listening to your book, is you said something about how how do how are we going to have the opportunity to just go on this eat, pray, love walkabout? <laughs> we have responsibilities. Someone has to to be, you know, with the kids, with the house, with whatever. What do we do about that? Like you said, you know, find support and we have to let go of some responsibilities and and things. But what is going to loosen the panini press additionally? (laughs) Like what can we do individually? Because a lot of it is on us. Like we become Mm -hmm. like the one who has to do everything. Um, We took that message to heart and then now we hang it over our head like a dark cloud like well no one else can do this no one else can do it the way I do it. yeah so what is some internal like work that maybe you've done or seen people do that we can do on ourselves to to alleviate that mental burden because I think it starts there doesn't it yeah well I mean something that I've I've heard from a lot of women who are happier is that they subscribe to the better done than perfect school so that if they don't want to cook dinner every night then they say like, okay, you're going to do it one night and like, you know, to their partner and their kid is going to do it one night. And if they're eating, you know, hot pockets, like whatever it is, if it's, if it's takeout, if it's anything, they just have to be like, mm-hmm, it's delicious. Like done. It's, it's done. <laughs> I didn't do it. It's wonderful. Um, and I think that is hard, especially for our generation raised with a sense of we have to cross every T and dot every I and be perfect um, to let go of that. But it, the, the people I know who are able to do it are happier. I will say that. Yeah. What were some of the biggest surprises in your research? Because I know you went into this with your own sort of, I just turned 40. I'm in a crisis. What are other people doing? So what, what did your research reveal that really surprised you? I was really surprised that a lot of women around the country use the same language. Like almost every interview that I conducted, and I did a couple hundred in almost every um, state, they would start by saying, I'm so lucky. I have no reason Mm -hmm. to complain. I'm definitely not in a crisis. 
Texas. I, you know, I'll help you because I'm very helpful, but this is not really something that I totally relate to. And then they would proceed to just tell me these stories about how much work they were doing and how much stress they were under and how hard it was and how, you know, their house had gotten foreclosed on because their husband was, it was just like these like litanies of hardship. And yet they would minimize it and they would say, but it's not like other people have it. Other people have it way worse. And I'm not saying that's not true. Um, but there was something about that desire to just not own it, like, or not talk mm. about it, but just to say like, it's no big deal that I found very telling. Yeah, that I found that too. So I, when I coach women, I have them write a personal narrative of their childhood from like age 10 and under. And 80% of the time it starts with, I had a great childhood <laughs> and, and then 20 pages later, <laughs> they have told me about their childhood. And I'm like, okay, so go back and reread your first line that I had this great childhood. Um, Cause yeah, there is that sort of softening of, or, or guilt to complain about what we have. And yeah, I can see that totally. But, uh, you know, I talk about it all the time about that. We can't compare suffering. Like we compare everything else that if you are hurting, you're still hurting. It doesn't matter what, how much money is in your bank account. Yeah. Um, and there's a difference between being grateful and appreciating what privileges you have and that kind of thing. Um, and, and not whining. Like, I think, you know, there is this, um, like, you know, if you think about all the movies about middle-aged men that we've been subjected to and all the novels <laughs> over the years, I mean, just decades and decades of material about how hard it is to be a middle-aged man. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm not saying they didn't have it hard or that balding isn't traumatic or any of it. But if you look at what women are trying to do today, as far as caring for a lot of people, contributing to the community, working really hard, making money, while they have their phones blowing up all day long, while they're going through perimenopause and their kids are going through puberty, it's it's just a new level of of exhaustion. And I think we get to talk about that, especially with one another, without it somehow taking away from what other people are experiencing or have experienced. Yeah, yeah. Well, if anyone has any questions, now's your time to ask. Um, one interviewer, interviewee, interviewee, said that she just felt like one day that she might just blow it all up. <laughs> and that was when I really tuned in and listened. I was like, oh yeah. Cause the thing that runs through my head all the time, and I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but I have this constant, I have to run dialogue that's in my head. Like, okay, well I gotta get out of here. Cause this place yeah. is crazy. Like um, the, the, the family, the kids, the husband, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm going to leave. And so when, when you interviewed that individual and she said, I'm just going to blow the whole thing up. I thought, Oh, now this is a book I can get behind. How do we do it? How do we blow it all up? Um, but that feeling of being trapped, I think that is a very tangible and relatable feeling to a lot of women. How many people felt trapped in your research? Was that a very common theme? It was a very common theme, the sense of, of that, you know, that they, there was no way out. And, you know, again, like, like you said, there's no eat, pray, love, walk about that you can go right. on. Where's if my you walk about? <laughs> Where's my walk about? I want a t-shirt. My friend who's um, said that, you know, there were so many GoFundMes that she was getting all the time. She, she said she was going to have a, where's my villa GoFundMe. It would be like, <laughs> need a villa. Yeah. Um, For real. Uh-oh. Let me mute Christina. Oh, there. She's back. Okay. <laughs> Christina. Um, what were we talking about? We had uh, uh, escaping. How like escaping. is that the theme? Like, give me well, out here's, of here. Here's 
Yeah. Here's what I think is interesting about that is a lot of women I've talked to in the last two months have said that they felt that the world had just blown up with um, everything that's happened in the last, you know, couple of months and that, you know, that now they're out of a job. Now they don't know where, when they're going to be able to go back to work or when they're going to be able to even really go outside or see friends or um, do anything. And that, that it's given them time to really think about what do they want things to look like on the other side of it, that there is this sense of um, like everything is up for grabs now. Yeah. I got a private question. Um, thank you, Ada. I've not read your book, but your original article was published. When your original article was published, it hit me like a truck. Meredith, oh. your comment on the nanny resonated deeply. How do we do a better job of tuning out some of the negative comments that come from other women who seem to have it all or be able to do it all. I know these statements are not accurate because we never know what happens behind closed doors. Finding support is easier said than done, especially now. I honestly often feel like despite being surrounded by people and family, I do feel alone in these thoughts. Is talking more to others the key? And yes, Meredith, sometimes trapped is accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, do you wanna take that one? Yeah, I mean, I, and then I want—I'd love to hear what you say. Um, I, I do. I think that finding other people who you can speak with honestly and who you can laugh with about these things is so important. However, you find it, whether it's online or in person, or you know, it doesn't have to be people in your family. It can be anybody um, to not feel alone. And that's one thing that I've—I've I've found so much in going and doing book events and hearing from people who read the book was that it made them feel less alone because it was even if they didn't even meet the people who were in the book that these voices sounded like voices in their own heads and that there was something so soothing about that. And just knowing that there were, even if it was just hundreds, but I I know it's a lot more than that, of women who were going through the same things and who could relate. Um, So I think that is is incredibly important. And if you haven't read the book, because you said you read the article, read the book because there's a constant, Ada does a great job um, saying one woman from Kansas City says and and direct quotes and you're you will relate to s- some of them will hit you like a Mack truck for sure like and the in one the, who's in like, the audiobook yeah I use a lot I use a bunch of their voices they're actual about a dozen of them their actual yeah, voices are in there. yeah your audiobook was great um, so my my take on this is interesting I get a lot of I don't know how you do it you do it all and like a lot of people put that on me often. And I am first to say, no, I don't. I don't sleep. And I, like, and I, I listed. I'm like, no, I don't have it all. I'm crazy. I just yelled at my kids for existing today. <laughs> I do, I'm not doing a good job having it all. Like, well, how are you here? Get out of here. Um, and, you know, I try not to portray that because I want people to, just like you said, have this community where they can come to and reach out. And I try to portray the bad days. And when I'm really pissed off on social media, or like yesterday was just a hard day. And I, I posted about that. Like, I'm just having to ride these waves of pain. Yesterday, I was just riding pain. It would like hit me, knock me down. And, and I don't mean physical pain. I mean, like emotional pain. And um, so I do think that finding support is easier said than done. But just look around too. Because it's there. I mean, like my community, it's here. Me. (laughs) Like, just email me. I'll tell you what kind of day I'm having. And there are people. There are people out there who are, are, are telling the truth. And here's what I know. There was a time in my life where I absolutely flipping had it all. And the way that that looked for me was 
a high-paying job, two perfect children, a house in the suburbs, an SUV, a Louis Vuitton in my front seat, and a suicidal mind. You know, <laughs> that's what having it all was for me. I wanted to drive my car into a tree. So don't think that the people out there who, who look like they have it all are really driving. Maybe some of them are, but just understand that, especially reading Ada's book, like you will hear voices that say the same thing. Like, I should be happy. I should feel great. I should. What do you think of that word, by the way? Should. Should. A very, I, mean, a, <laughs> I heard it a lot. I'll tell you that. But I would also say um, it helps to get like an Ocean's Eleven style team in place. So like a gynecologist who's, who knows about menopause and a financial planner who knows about whatever your particular line of work is. Um, and uh, just Anybody who you a therapist, a good therapist who you can really talk to and who really sees you. Um, I think once you get an army of people like a pet sitter, I mean just like whatever it takes <laughs> yeah. that like are people you trust and and who have your interests at heart and can help you with that area of your life. I think if you get get three or four or five of those people, things can start to turn around very quickly. Yeah. And if you are running your own business or trying to be an entrepreneur, take advantage of sites like Fiverr and uh, Upwork, or I think is another one where you can get assistance for relatively inexpensive to help yeah. you do some things that are that are slowly killing you. Um, <laughs> I have recently done that with the podcast. Just I only like six episodes ago did I offload my media, my audio production. That's how intensely <laughs> controlling I am about everything. But learn to offload what you can is a big thing too. And and that requires releasing some control, which yeah. I think is part of our generation too, is trying to control the narrative and, and control how we look. And we got it. I got it. It's fine. It's fine. So it's important to note in your book that you did look at middle-class women. And um, yes. Suzanne asked, how did you find the women to interview? So can you speak a little bit about the sample size and who you talked to and why privilege, like where does privilege play, play a role in yeah. that, which I think is an important part of the conversation too. Yeah, it totally is. Um, so I limited it, like my research in a couple ways. And one was by age, so late 30s to early 50s. Um, and then class-wise, I felt like, you know, we see so much on TV, like especially reality TV about rich women and what they're dealing with. So I feel like that's covered. And then I've done a lot of reporting about poor women and women in like marginalized communities who are really suffering. And there are so many issues that they're dealing with. The book would be five times longer. Um, and I think they're dealing with all of these things too. And then in addition to that are like a lot of um, other problems, access to healthcare and, and other things. So I feel like what I tried to do with this book was just to find a lot of women around the country of all races and from all states and Republicans and Democrats um, and people who go to church and don't go to church and, and all those uh, different categories who all were dealing with some of the same issues around being a woman who was middle-aged. And that was sort of the, the, the main thing. Um, I found them. Well, luckily, I was doing that Oprah.com story first. So I was able to like harness the social media for, <laughs> for like Oprah.com, which was gigantic. And I got thousands like, of responses. Hey, Oprah, do you have any women? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have hey. any women in middle age who like want to talk about their lives? I don't know. Um, no. 
So, uh, so I got like thousands of responses through that and I was able to go through them. I turned them into like a Google doc and then picked out women I wanted to interview. There are a lot of great message boards out there for women of this age. And I, I plucked a few people from there to, to reach out to you and talk to you on the phone. Um, I talked to a lot of my friends, friends of friends. And, and I, when I sort of saw that there were certain groups that I wasn't covering enough, I, I made a concerted effort to find women who fit into those categories too. Yeah. Well, Ada, it's a fantastic book. Like, well done. Oh, thank <laughs> just, you so much. Well done. Well what done. a lovely group of people you have um, yes. around too. I do have lovely groups of people around. I, we have a good community, everyone. Excellent. <laughs> you can complain here. Um, so what is something that you do in your 24 hours? So this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning we have the same 24 hours in our day, but that looks different to everyone. Um, so what is something that you do in your 24 hours on a daily basis, especially is midlife. Like what is keeping you grounded? What is a habit that you've developed or cultivated that really gives you strength right now? Um, so I have a little shed, it, like full, filled with spiders in the yard, <laughs> but I still, I go out there in the morning and I work on, um, I'm working on a couple of book projects right now. So I, I go out with my laptop and my cup of coffee and I sit in my little shed um, and it's really wonderful. So I, you know, now uh, I'm it, when the weather's not great. I I have a little shed of the mind, and I pretend I'm in a shed. So <laughs> shed of the mind. <laughs> That's funny. So I had um, near Al on. He wrote Indistractable. I had him on a couple months ago, and he said that one of the ways to become indistractable in your own household, especially now if you don't have a shed, is to put on a crown or something that lights mm. up. And you can wear it on your head. So when the people come to have request of you, you can, they see that you have on your flashing crown. And, and that is to be told when mom has her flashing crown on, you do not talk to her. Because even that the mere mention of, I have my crown on, don't talk to me, distracts you. So they're told ahead of time. And it's so funny because I started doing that. And before I moved up into the bedroom slash now office, I used to work downstairs. And so the kids would come barreling around the corner. My son slides across the floor like Kramer on Seinfeld. Like that's how he <laughs> enters the kitchen. Like, Whoosh. and so now I see him like slide in and he sees I have my crown on and he'll like tiptoe out. <laughs> and it, well it, trained. Definitely, it definitely gives me that time, but I, I'm still seeing like the distraction fly across yeah. the room. So finally I'm up here and uh, it seems to work out. But a she shed, that's man, that's, wait, is it actually like a she shed or is it just like a, it's like a gardening shed that I that doesn't have any gardening stuff in it. Okay. <laughs> it's like an actual <laughs> shed. But it's funny because of, with the crown idea, a friend of mine has like a little nameplate like we'd have in an office. Yeah. But she and her husband are both freelance, so they're home all the time. So if she sets the nameplate out on the kitchen table or wherever she is, then that is the signal that she is in the office. Is it her nameplate like from the office? Yeah. Like her, her name. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I didn't know if it said something like do not disturb, but it's like literally I, I, her name. I think it's just her name. Maybe it has a title under it, like officer or so. I don't remember what it was. Oh, that's funny. I like that. I like that. Well, Ada, thank you so much for your time, everyone. Her book, Why We Can't Sleep. The audio book is excellent. That's what I listen to. Thank you. And um, yeah, just if you've got any midlife friends, share it with them. And, and look, we can all create our own communities. All it takes is you and another person and then to find someone else you like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then slowly you've got four people. Yeah. Well, and I will say that I've been hearing from so many women who use this book as a, a tool to have conversations that they weren't otherwise having with their friends about money or their marriages or whatever it was that it's like a book club that becomes like a midlife crisis, you know, support group. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Hey, have you read this? Let's go for a walk and talk about it. <laughs> Book club. Yeah. Get some Book wine. Club. and. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you, Ada, everyone. I will post up the recording and share this with any of your friends. And that's a way to get things started. So thank you, Meredith. We'll take care and we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.